0: Hello and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas, I'm Drushniks, Content Producer for Label Sessions and in this episode, Maxine Mackey of Label Sessions talks to Vinay Palmer. Vinay is a customer experience leader with a career spanning over 25 years, revamping National Express as their MD turned Chief Customer Experience Officer. Over to Vinay and Maxine.
1: Hi, Vinay. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to host you on the Label Sessions Present podcast and explore what it means to be a leader in customer experience and how to make change happen, something you're very much known for. Um, Maybe to kick us off, could you please introduce yourself to the audience and maybe just give us a sense of your journey? I'd start
2: with my my childhood growing up. Um, My dad is an immigrant to the UK, came over from Kenya, in 1967, uh, and set up a business here in, in Birmingham, which was a, a green grocers, which specialized in Indian groceries, uh, and African, African, uh, groceries and, and stuff as well. And so my I guess, my earliest memories are of being in the business. So, you know, sitting on a till or going out and doing deliveries with him or going out and doing the wholesale market in the morning. So even though. I wasn't actively doing business. I was just around him and seeing kind of what was going on and the relationships and, and kind of how people talked about my dad's business and the relationship they had with him. Um, and then you kind of, you know, went to school, like most kids, I was supposed to get straight A's uh, and I played way too much cricket, didn't realize enough and then fell all my exams. Um, and so I had to, I had to kind of circle back, retake some retake some GCFCs. Uh, oh. By the time I'd, we took them and passed them my friends who would all start the a-levels were in their second year and they'd kind of there was a bit of distance between me and them and they'd moved on and i was like well i don't really know what i want to do with my life so i started to study graphic design uh, at a local college and got quickly bored of it because the course content wasn't quite what i expected but at that time i was also working a customer service I was working at McDonald's on the front line um and then at in that period my auntie one of my mom's really best friend, um, got me a job in a bank that she was working with. It was in a contact center and it was uh, for HFC Bank and it was working on the GM card and, and they later had the goldfish card and marbles and all of those kind of brands. But uh, I was I worked in a contact center taking credit card, credit, um, credit card applications of the phone and credit applications on the phone. And when I got there I just absolutely loved it because I was talking to people, building relationships, learning about learning about other people because I was talking to them on the phone. But the thing that really kind of, I guess, has been the, the signature of the, the sweat throughout my career is my thirst and curiosity for wanting to understand the bigger picture and how things work. So where lots of people will naturally talk to teams that they will come into contact with because of the work they do. So, um, if they're adjacent teams, I, Kind of went out of my way to go and understand teams that I wouldn't normally come into contact with. How do these dots join to together? And actually, if I take a credit card application, where does the paperwork go and how does the card get sent out? And then what happens? And then what happens? So I built my career buying people cups of coffee or going and spending time with other teams, asking questions, shutting up and listening and just learning how things work. And so I spent four years there. I then went on to where uh, the egg.com, which was a, a brand new bank in the uk i was part of the team that launched it i was i think i was employee number 50 at the time or something like that so it was one of the very first in through the door and it was an amazing culture all set around customer experience and revolutionizing the language we're using was revolutionizing the customer experience you know in a way that banks went delivering at that time it was you know it was disruptive um you know people talk this in this in this kind of day and age about the netflix and the ubers and those being disruptors but egg was a real disruptor in this in the financial services space so i spent a total of 10 years there the two into five years in a range of different roles uh, including heading up change setting up third party relationships in fact a lot of stuff that i really had no business being involved in but because i'd just been curious and put myself forward and and really taken an interest and figured out how things work and um, i just got exposed to those things and then I freelance for about ten years, from 2006 up to about 2015, 15, 16. um, Worked with a bunch of clients, partly as an associate, worked with other consultants, but also direct. Again, in the space of leadership and customer experience, consult customer experience improvement, etc. And then in 2015, July or something, in 2015, I spoke at NASA Express's conference about customer experience. Delivered a session, and at the end of it. We were invited back to take part in a project that they wanted to do, but the, just as we were about to start that project, the head of contact center had left, the customer experience director was on long-term sick, and so I was offered in an interim role to kind of help them fix the problem they had in the short term. So that interim role went from three months to six months, and then by the end of the six months, um, I remember it was Christmas <laughs> Um, you know, the other directors were all telling me uh, or trying to convince me to stay because, you know, we'd had a good stint. And so um, they offered me a role and I ended up um, being a director in the coach business at National Express, then across the UK, across all of their brands. And then I ended up eight years later uh, finishing as the cust- chief customer experience officer, driving all of their strategic stuff, around customer experience.
1: You share lots of stuff online about... Um insights around leadership and culture change customer experience and, and digital transformation and maybe i thought a good place to, to kick things off for us would be what's the difference between change and transformation and how important do you think is it for leaders to kind of understand and i guess communicate the difference between change and transformation?
2: it's good timing because i wrote an article about it not long ago so um for me and my definition, so change is about changing something that you do. So you're changing a process, you're changing a thing. It's a surface level improvement or iteration of something that already exists. So an existing process, an existing product line. Transformation is about changing who you're being. So it's a multi-level transformation. So you're, you're going right down to your core. Who are we? What do we stand for? What are our values? Um, we're creating new, something new that doesn't yet exist. We're having to change our paradigm from where we operate. So they are, they are two very different things, but, but in business, they are often interchangeably used in language. So people talk about change when they mean transformation They talk about transformation when they're talking about change. So as as I say, change is your kind of top line level. Um, we're just changing something that really exists. And this is a a, a sort of a, a complete reinvention in, in transformation one's not better than the other they both have a role in business but they do require a different set of skills understanding and an approach to achieve success and probably why a lot of change programs fail is because they've not they've not understood whether they're a change or a transformation
1: and i guess there can be a lot of fatigue in organizations whether it's multiple change initiatives or transformation initiatives um and, and that confusion between the two can can often cause issues. Um, customer experience is quite an unusual stream in an organisation. I know when when we've spoken, we've talked about this before, because um, I think customer experience and CX cuts across every vertical in the business, and this is probably maybe only similar to innovation roles in the sense that it crosses across, um, across all verticals. But it was interesting because you 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 mentioned earlier, and I think it's probably a bit around how you operate when you were. Even in a call center, like, you know, at the start of your career, taking credit card applications, you're like, where does it go? What happens next? So there's obviously always been that curiosity for you, which is amazing to hear. Um, But I'm quite curious around, um, I guess, the foundations for great customer experience in an organization and CX, this notion of CX crossing across verticals. Could you speak to what you think are the right foundations, organizations need to improve, kind of, a uh, maintain, um, you know, amazing customer experiences?
2: There's probably three or four things I'll draw out. So first thing that I would say is customer experience isn't part of the business, it is the business. It is the thing that runs through everything. Uh, every opportunity is an interaction happening between a potential customer, a current customer, or someone in between. And in that moment, they are making a judgment call about, whether or not I want to do something in this organization. And that judgment call is normally made by how they feel in that moment. And so customer experience for me is really about understanding what drives human behavior. It's about understanding emotion, how we make people feel, and understanding that the result of how we make people feel drives that future behavior. So therefore, the focus is on how do we ensure that we understand how our processes, systems, and the way that we do things make people feel in a particular moment, we can understand a likelihood and propensity for their future behavior. And the future behavior that we normally want is advocacy or loyalty. We want them to stick with us and buy more, or we want them to recommend us to their friends and family. Or the third one is trust, have a level of trust in our branding. So if for example, you're in the nonprofit market, and it's not really about commercial uh, revenue for you, then it will be probably more around reputational trust. um, And that kind of thing. So you've got those three behaviors. So, for me, the simple the simple way to look at CX is, is about understanding at each point of the journey how you are making customers feel, and then when you understand how you want them to feel and the behavior you want to drive, it's then having just a real clear set of design principles that help people in the understand in the, in the organization understand how they need to approach the thing that they're doing designing in order to elicit those emotions. So I normally so that there are I think there are just kind of four universal ones to be quite honest. And most of the time when I'm talking to clients, I'm talking about make it simple. Don't overwhelm customers with too much choice. Don't use complicated language. You know, your design needs to be clutter-free. Just make it as simple as possible. Make it easy. Reduce the amount of steps that somebody's got to go through in order to get something done or to find what they're looking for. Make it stress-free. Signpost, tell the customers what's coming next. Help them to understand how they can undo a mistake. All of those kind of all of those kind of things. And the fourth one is make it human. Remember that you're speaking and you're dealing with a human being at the other side and therefore personalization, empathy, the ability to connect at human level. Those four things, if they're your design principles and you apply them to everything you do in an organization, you're going to have a better chance of eliciting those positive emotions and therefore have a greater chance of driving the behavior that you're looking for.
1: And does that apply to, I guess, different verticals? So there's customer facing elements, then there can be kind of a more behind the scenes. I'm thinking some of the operations teams or even finance teams, does that apply to them as well?
2: Absolutely does because the same is about the internal experience as well as one well of the ex- external experience. So there's a direct correlation between employee engagement and how customer experience is felt on the outside. So if on the inside you're disjointed and things aren't working well and, and things are difficult between department to department, that then gets reflected in the way that service is delivered to the customer. So you know, when I've worked with other organizations around this and, and, and you know, at National Express, when we, when we started to adopt these design principles, those groups that weren't traditionally customer facing kind of looked at that and went, but that applies internally, doesn't it? About how we work with each other, make things easy for each other, simple between each other, treat each other in a human way, and actually, you know, reduce stress between each other by, by signposting and setting clear expectations and service levels and all those kind of things. That will constitutes that. So yeah, I think it fits in everywhere in an organization.
1: That's so interesting with your point about um, internal culture of reflecting actually the, the the customer experience. Do you think that's a for people who are, I guess, interested in customer experience roles and internal change roles? Do you think there is something in really understanding the culture of an organization first before being able to think what do we have to do next?
2: Absolutely. Uh, it's like anything else in life, if you're going to achieve a goal or an outcome, you can do the surface level stuff. So say for example, um you wanted to go on a journey to lose weight. So you could go to the gym, you could exercise, you could do all the surface level stuff and you'd lose a little bit of weight and you might do all right. But to really to really consistently and to deeply achieve your goal, you need to understand your belief system internally. Well, so what's your relationship with food? What's your belief system about what's good, what's bad. And if you do that deeper work, you're creating a more transformational systemic change in what's going on in here on the inside, which then reflects on the outside. So the culture is the context in which you operate. If the culture is not right, it doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to have the same effect without first understanding, you know, the the DNA, the how things happen, the beliefs, the, the belief of the organization, what the operating context is. If you understand that first, you've got a better chance um, of having a a successful outcome.
1: I wonder if you've got any thoughts on where culture should sit in an organisation. Does it sit in HR or brand and marketing?
2: The the, the last place it should sit is HR because um, they're not the one. Culture is a byproduct, or culture is created by leadership. It's created by not the things you do, but it's created by the way that people behave. So, It's the leadership team. And I don't necessarily mean in a hierarchical sense of it's got to start from, you know, it's it's all about the executive. Of course, they set the agenda and it does start there. But at every level in the organization, whether you're a leader by position or a leader through the act of the work that you do, it is how you carry yourself that drives the culture in an organization. It gives people the culture of an organization, gives people the blueprint to understand what does good look like around here. What's accepted? Um, how do people interact with one another? What are the rules of engagement here? That's what the culture is, and so it can't be owned by one team and one department. Um, it's something that's collectively owned around the business. Now, the awareness of it and the training around it can be created and facilitated by a HR team and the learning development team, but the execution and the creation of a culture happens by every individual. One of the reasons that Egg was so successful is very much that reason that it came through leadership at every level in the organization. Everyone understood the the vision, the mission, the values, and more importantly, everyone held each other accountable for living those values. When somebody didn't live in accordance with those values, they were called out. It's just the way we did things. And so that made it a really successful working culture because everyone was engaged in it. It didn't just live as a poster on the wall. Um, I think there's a lot of organizations.
1: I'm quite curious, does that mean, do you think then for leaders, is it really their peers helping, holding them to account around, or I'm not sure about that, so it's really more of a team game rather than being kind of a policed?
2: Yes, absolutely. Culture is a team game. You create it the collective. It's how you treat each other. It's how you respond to each other. It's how you hold each other to account. You know, In a great culture, you can have the disagreement about something, but have strong mutual respect and still... You know, work effectively to one another. You can have opposing views about something, but still come together and work through something. Um, it's not about getting on with people and just being nice to one another. It's about having those. It's about having the, um, the environment that allows you to 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 be kind of take accountability and to hold other people responsible.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team.
1: So I I wanted to explore around how organizations can put customers, I guess, at the heart of their strategies, and really what's at risk if they don't. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, and then maybe kind of hear a bit about a journey of when you've been able to, I guess, embed that kind of a customer-centric behavior.
2: Customer-centricity is simply, for me, the act of making sure that in those important decision-making conversations or moments of decision that the customer is considered, uh, and they're considered from understanding how it's going to impact them, the result's going to have for them, understanding their customers are different and how the different customer groups might might impact and different ways that people do that. I mean, it's just about bringing them into conversation. So, either you make sure that they're all, always part of the agenda in the conversation. Um, I think there's a story that Amazon has an empty chair in their boardroom or in their meeting that represents the customer. So, the customer's always in the room. Um, I worked with a travel company that had cardboard cutouts of their customer pen portraits in the middle of the desks in all the meeting rooms so to make sure the customer was always in the room. So, it's just about making sure that whatever, your, whatever decision you're making, and look, you might still make that same difficult decision, but you're doing it with the customer in the decision rather than them being an afterthought once the decision's been made. So customer centricity is about that, and it's about making sure it's, it also forms the heart and center of the approach of design and how you're choosing, you know, how, to, how you set out your web pages, how you choose your suppliers, you know, it, it permeates through everything. That's really what customer centricity is about, placing the customer at the heart of them, not just because it says so on your value statement or your mission statement, but because you're actively, through behavior, including them in what you're doing. And I guess the example that I would share is probably my experience at National Express. When I joined eight years ago, they had a value about you know customers, you know, customers at the heart of what we do. And yeah, people did care about the customer I and mean, customer service was important, but the organization wasn't behaving in a customer-centric way. So the customer... Wasn't in all of the conversations. So we weren't having, there weren't meetings, or every meeting didn't have customer as part of the decision making process to talk about the commercials, to talk about the operation, to talk about financials. But the customer impact wasn't always in there. And in the beginning of that journey, I found that as the senior executive responsible, I'd have to be in a lot of those conversations around products to make sure that that happened. And so my job is to drive that agenda and try to get people to to come around it, improve our ability, share insight, invite people in. I think sometimes CX people can do a disservice to themselves. They're clearly clearly passionate, capable people, but sometimes they can overwhelm uh, their peers and their other uh, adjacent departments by sharing all this insight with them, but not really helping them to understand why they should care about it and what difference it really makes. And sometimes you've got to first understand before you can be understood. So you've got to spend time in those other teams to understand what fires they're putting out, what challenges they have, what 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 operating context they're within so that you can really impart what it is that you're looking for. Um, and so we went on a bit of a journey. And by the end of the eight years, I can say that there were conversations happening all the time. And I didn't need to be in them to know that the customers were being talked about so the customer was, other people would then saying, oh, what about the customer? Or should we think about the customer here? So they were the indicators that told me that we were starting to, and it wasn't perfect. And you know, it takes a lot of work, but we had made that journey from it being me in every conversation to to I didn't need to be in every, every discussion to make sure that it happened.
1: I think there's a real lesson in the example you, you just shared, Tiffany, around. You can sh- bombard people with insights and information and stats you if they don't necessarily immediately pick up like how it applies to them. I think helping them on that journey and making it easier. And I think that's where really I think being a collaborator and not just your team but your organization is really important because you can find and uh, most of the time I'm sure like I guess mutual benefits for different teams. So if we make a decision on how we treat customers and how we communicate to them up front, that might release a little bit of pressure on call centers or, you know, um you know, uh, uh, overall NPS score, something like that. Um, So it's interesting around, I think for people who are trying to say, make change happen or are maybe not the exec in charge, but want to, you know, be the voice of a customer in sessions to really think about it's that translation and that so what's really important that maybe gets forgotten sometimes.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll give you another quick example. So another organization that I was involved in, they they had a problem in the purchase in their purchase process. So when customers would would go on their website to buy um a product and it was it was a low value product. So we're talking about probably the average value between five and fifteen quid. It wasn't it wasn't a huge amount. But what would happen is the customer would go to buy the product and the call would be made to get the money and by some disconnection they get an error to say the purchase hadn't gone through. And they would try again Um, and the second time it might go through, but what would have, what happened is they were charged twice so that, or it looked like they were charged twice. So the bank had taken the money or re the money in their account. Um, and we were, we were dealing at that time with customers and quite low incomes as well. So the insight was guys, we've got a problem with the IT that customers are trying to buy a product. It's causing an issue and it's reinventing this money for customers. And And it was raised and it was raised and it was raised as insight. this data that we need to fix this problem it was called shadow payments um and it wasn't really getting any traction at an it level and it was causing a huge problem in the contact center because customers were calling every day saying you've taken my money and i'm taking you to court because you've charged me twice and all of this stuff so you had this pain happening in the contact center but the the team the digital team just weren't getting what the problem was and it was only when we sat them down and we went look This is what's happened to a customer. That £15 that's been reinvented in their account that that, that they can't use now, and you're saying we'll be refunded in two to three days. That's the difference between them eating and not eating. They're not on the same salaries that you're on working in IT. They don't have the same background. And it was only when we started to have that conversation to bring that insight or that data to life through a real story and demonstrating and creating that dialogue that the penny dropped and they suddenly went, ah, okay, we get it now. And then... It was prioritised to change, and the change happened. But until that point, it was just people sharing reports upstairs, just emailing to say this many calls we had, this many customers impacted. It doesn't mean anything. You've got to bring it to life. And as a CX leader, you have to be able to articulate and tell the story in a way that brings people together. Look, you have an, you have a unique experience, you have a unique viewpoint, vantage point in the organisation as a CX leader, where everyone else in your team is looking vertically. You're looking horizontally. You get to see the intersection across everything. You get to see the dependencies about what's happening. So you can see the patterns about how things are related faster and better than anyone else can if you're a good CX leader. And so your job is to be able to bring that together in a coherent story and help people at those different verticals to understand their role, their contribution and their potential for improving that for the customer. And then why that matters to the organization.
1: Vinny, I think you're a great communicator and you're really talking about how important it is to communicate things. So the difference between sending a report and an email and like just talking to someone and you're clearly an incredible communicator. And I wanted to touch on this because I think change programs and change or transformation in any organization often goes quite wonky when communication isn't invested in. Um, the messaging isn't refined or honed or, or or kind of clarified, and people think that they can like you know communicate something off the cuff. And 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 not everyone is as probably I think skilled as you in this area. But I'm curious how you've cultivated your skills as a communicator, um and maybe what advice that you would give to others.
2: I probably had. I mean, when I was a kid, I was involved in performing arts a so, lot. You know, I was in a choir i performed on the stage. So. I probably already had kind of a an inbuilt thing in me about just being able to kind of uh, use presence and and I guess um, I wouldn't say communication i say performance, but the but the confidence to stand up and do something. I think that's probably where the kind of ground comes from. Um, I then uh, was coached. I got coaching skills. I was coached around my presentation skills. I went on uh, speaking workshops. I watched the very best speakers in the world and I learned from them and I'm always analyzing um when people are standing up and speaking at a dispatch box or whether they at a company conference or whether they're just uh, a teacher communicating with the students I'm always looking for what's going on how well are they doing looking for how how when people do really well what i learned from that and when people I think oh that'd be quite random what we want with that so I think there's just again a sense of curiosity and wanting to have a growth mindset Around, around speaking, because I hold it as such a critical skill. I just think that, you know, go back to your point that most change program and transformation programs fall over because of communications poor. Um, You know, the articulation of the new reality that you want people to step into, is the most significant thing, if people don't understand clearly what you're asking them to step into and how that is going to affect them and how is it going to be different from them, and why the world is gonna be a better place as a result of doing that. If you can't do that, then you won't achieve that because people won't step into something that they don't understand. If it's ambiguous and clear, um, and it's cloudy, people are just feeling their ways in the dark. You know, they're not they're not knowing that what they're doing is really driving that. But if you've got that crystal clarity about here's where we're going, here's why we're doing it, here's how the world's gonna be different. Um, and the honesty and transparency that, yeah, you know, there might be a result in the your organization might look different as a result of this, but this is what we've got to do, and this is where we've got to do it. It's clear. So I invested in myself to, to, in, into my skills and that because I saw them as going be important. And I do hold them as being probably as, as a leader in a business, if, you know, your ability to communicate and communication, meaning list, both listen and speak. So I didn't just invest in, how well I um, I spoke and I communicated from me to you, but I also invested heavily in understanding how to listen, how to decode what people are saying, how to understand um, how to understand uh, body language and to read between the lines and all of those kind of things. So, you know, I, I studied psychology, neurolinguistics, all of those kind of things to kind of give me that edge that I would understand more than what's actually happening at any one time at deeper level.
1: That's really interesting and especially hearing dedication that goes into refining a skill. Um, I think a lot about now in, for hybrid teams um, a new say entrance to the workforce so it could be graduates or school leavers or whoever joining work, they don't necessarily get to see all the prep that goes into something to really understand um, how things get done. So I think Um, I was really lucky. I learned so much from even just being on a graduate program and, and, and getting exposed to so much and having a bit of permission to, to, to fail. I mean, this, this was a long time ago, but I think it's that, um, that learning and being able to soak up everybody else and how they do things, learning how someone preps for a meeting. I think those things are really important. And I worry about, you know, for say, um, if I was starting a new role today and it was my first job, um, how would I kind of learn how things get done, if, especially when it's all done remotely? I guess it's just around having as many one-to-ones as you can and, 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 and building a network. And it sounds like that that kind of a network building is something that you've really prioritized where wherever you've worked.
2: It's massively important. Building those relationships is ma- is hugely important. And I think the way, if I was somebody starting a the role today, would do there's a few things in this. First of all, don't wait for permission. If you're waiting for somebody to come and invite you, that invitation's probably never going to come. So go go and make yourself known and have the conversation. And it might be simple as, listen, um, I work in that team over there. I've noticed that you guys um, do this function, and I'm really curious to understand how that works. Can I come and spend a bit of time? Can I listen to some of your calls? Can I come and watch what you're doing? Can I spend half an hour with you? Um, And start from that in that place as well because I think if you can do that and then move around you almost create your own mini graduate program because you know you're moving around different teams yeah and I think to a degree that's what I did I didn't I didn't go through a graduate program but by doing what I did I almost created my own mini graduate program because I ended up having stints in different teams so I, I think I think that's really really key I think having the confidence um and there's a you know there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance but being self-assured enough or, or confident enough to put your hand up and say um, I'll, I'll have a go, um, or I'll, I'd like to get involved in that, or I'd like to be in that. I think that's, that's another skill or another thing that I just don't see enough people doing. They're too scared and put their head, you know, they don't put their head above the parapet, they won't come up with ideas. You know, there's so many ideas floating around in an organization, but very few make them to the surface because people are just scared that they'll either get it wrong, they'll get told off, or, you know, if you've got the one culture, certainly that's the case. Some organizations not. So I think, those, I think that's, that's really, really important. And I think, um, you know, the third part, as I said, networking and building that, building those relationships across different teams. Um, and that comes from treating people well, whether it's one-to-one or on a Zoom or on a phone call, but it's having that human understanding that you're always dealing with a human being, you know, despite title, despite position, everybody's a human being and we're all wired biologically the same way on the inside, you know, we we all want to be treated well, we all want to be respected, we all want to be valued. Um and understanding that. And I guess for me personally, there was a philosophy that I picked up a few years ago. Um, but probably it was a kind of transformative experience for me. So I read I read a book called The Art of Possibility, um, and it's by Ben Zander and Ro- Rosalind Stone. I think his his wife is. Um, ben Zanders, the, the uh, conductor in the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, or was, and um, he suddenly had this epiphany in, in the middle of his life where he realized that the conductor's on the cover of every CD and every poster, yet they don't make a single sound. It's the orchestra and it's the, it's the ability of the conductor to, to lead their orchestra that makes them powerful. All the sound comes from them, not from, he doesn't play a single instrument but in that story he talks about this um, example from a, a brother and sister um in the world war and they were they were on the way to auschwitz and um there were brother and sister on the train and the older sister younger brother and the younger brother was playing up and she was like getting really cross with him and she's like oh for god's sake you know do you haven't even tied your shoes properly or something along those lines anyway they got separated he went to auschwitz and unfortunately didn't make it and was, was killed um and she survived and she made a decision that she would never say anything again to anyone that couldn't be the last thing that she would ever say to somebody um, because that, that experience the last thing that she said to her brother was that had she known what was about to happen there would be a different conversation so my version of that is I always try to make people I always try to have an experience with people where they, lead, they, they always leave my presence feeling better than when they first came into contact with me now, we might still be having a difficult conversation. We might be tackling some quite prickly pr- subjects, but the intent is always to have that clarity, that respect, that conversation, that at least they always leave the conversation feeling better or feeling feeling in a in a, in a good state. And that's always something I've adopted for myself.
1: I might move to some quick fine questions, Vinay. Um. So, first one, can you describe your desk for our audience, please?
2: Minimalist, I have a monitor, keyboard, mouse, Um, everything's quite orderly. I do think I'm mildly ADHD in some ways Um, and a little bit compulsive disorder as well maybe. Yes, it's it's very minimalist, not many things on here, very little clutter.
1: Are there any useful websites or people um, you follow that you could recommend to stay on the pulse of all things, kind of a customer experience?
2: I don't know necessarily customer experience wise, um, but I think the kind of people that I follow um, I like, I listen to podcasts by Stephen Bartlett so I love the CEO, Diary of the CEO podcast, um, but then I also love listening to the rest of his politics, I think that's, that's a fantastic podcast um, I will tend to read articles from uh, you know from I guess thought leaders in the, uh, in space, and there isn't anyone specific that I would say this is the person I really really follow and that's my go to, I try to it's like my, my music taste is I don't have one genre. I kind of look across and I, I I like all types of music and I think there's something to be gained from different things. So even if people aren't talking directly about customer experience, so for example, one of the people that I follow is uh, Doctor Andrew Doctor Andrew Huberman, who is um, a neuroscientist, and I'm fascinated by what he talks about. Now I'm not a neuroscientist, but what he gives me is an insight into how the human brain works, which is linked to why I, why I want to understand how human beings. Hey, and emotions so there's a link there um uh, yeah so things like that sorry i don't i don't have a single pitch
1: no 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 um i think the more the merrier um i really like the rest is um politics too because it's i guess it I, I guess the promise is it's different um political opinions because well i i i think that like debate doesn't really happen anymore and there's a there's not a lot of um respect for it for for people in in kind of a debate and I guess in the chambers of kind of a governance um, and politics, and I'm sure there's kind of a um, threads of that that come through some organisations. So I think it's really interesting to. I love that podcast because it teaches you to really listen and understand other perspectives, and that's their whole thing. And they do, you know, they obviously like each other. They're very personable people, but they don't. I think it was like what you were saying earlier. You can have a you know a difficult conversation, but somebody doesn't have to leave feeling Really bad. You still want them to leave, like with with some positives.
2: I think the um, you know, the, I think well, I think it was the Einstein or somebody said, genius is the ability to hold two opposing views at the same time. And I think the more that you can expose yourself to the things that you gravitate towards that validate your opinion, but also be prepared to need and expose yourselves that challenge your opinion. I think you're right. There isn't enough debate. I think there's there's lots of um, compliance and people in agreeable. In an agreeable state for the worry of being cancelled or for the worry of a blacklash, or not saying what they really feel um and so you don't you don't get those kind of polarizations of opinion a lot of the time so there's, there's too much in them there's too much in the middle ground um and i'm not one for having a, a polarizing opinion just for a polarizing opinion's sake to try and cause impact or that kind of thing but i think if you hold a view you hold a view don't you um and you don't, it doesn't matter if everybody doesn't agree with it and i think I was talking to somebody earlier today, um, she's starting a business and we were talking about posting on LinkedIn and I'm a prolific poster, as you know. Um, and she was talking about, you know, getting started. And so the first thing you've got to do is get out of your own way. And you've got to realize that it's not about you. Forever that you post something and worry, will people agree, Would they disagree, will they like it? they're not like you won't post anything. You've got to be prepared to put your stuff out there because it's your point of view and your perspective. And if you're talking about your, your life experience, your perspective and your point, and you're just putting that across and you're not asking everyone to conform to that but it's a, it's an idea then then that's great that's all that's all you that's all you're seeking to do um but i think you know people are paralyzed a little bit at the moment about being able to kind of step out of their own way and realize that it's not it's not about them you know it's it you're adding a value into the world by by giving a view and in an opinion
1: well, i guess the cancel culture is really real um for a lot of people and i think that's that can be really demoralizing because i think we need to coexist with multiple perspectives um and move away from i guess right and wrong because i think i don't know like i think that most things in life sit in the gray area they they, they unfortunately aren't, aren't, aren't black and white in reality whereas our views and our hopes and dreams can be but But I think there's something around more kind of a, you've got two ears, one mouth, so listen more.
2: Yes, two ears. I said to to a group of college kids the other day, we've got two eyes and two ears and one mouth. You're supposed to observe more, listen more, and speak less. And that's the the proportion you're supposed to do. it. And I think, you know, when you go back to the truth, there are three versions of the truth. There's their truth, there's your truth, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. Um, and that's just the way you've got to kind of look at the world sometimes.
1: In another life, what would your career be? Uh,
2: in another life, uh, I'd have been a I I was thinking cr- maybe
1: a cricketer. Yeah, from, a professional from cricketer. Sort of yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would. I would have loved to have been a professional cricketer. Um, I think yeah, that had been that amazing. Travelling the world, playing my favourite sport for sure, or or at least a cricket journalist if I wasn't good enough to play. But something to do with cricket would have been would have been my thing.
1: How would you describe your leadership style?
2: open, vulnerable, transparent, collaborative, empathetic. And I'd say it's kind of backwards leadership. So I think leadership is about standing at the back of the room rather than standing at the front of the room. And so for me, it's not about me, and it's not about the position I hold, but it's about how I create the empowerment and the framework for people to go and do their best work. They're smarter than me, probably more capable than me, more qualified than me. And most of my career, I've ended up managing people that have got way more qualifications than I have. But my job is not to be the smartest person in the room. My job is to create the conditions that allow other people to be the best that they can be.
1: Well, I've got our last question. It's something that we, we, we ask everybody. Um, on a scale of one to 10, um, how weird are you, Vinay?
2: Oh, I'm weird. Well, yeah, I think I'm weird. What would be weird about me? I uh, just, I actually, I'm, I'm quite... Particular about certain things. I've been in a bit. I'm, I'm slightly OCD. Um, I have a, I have like a real strange thing in music. Like one minute I have be listening to gangster hip hop from the 1990s, and the next minute I have be listening to opera Best genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been listening to opera or some kind of soprano, or Frank Sinatra or something else in the middle. Pick a number. Seven.
1: I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: <laughs> you are welcome. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.